chapter 7, and this evening I want to minister a, a teaching entitled, Jesus Raises the Dead. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 11. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain. Many of his disciples went with him and much people. And when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the coffin or the bier. They that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. He that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. There came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet has risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. This rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. So, Father, for the next few moments as we minister the word of the Lord, we pray that you give us ears to hear. Help us to see once again that no matter what we're facing, you are bigger than every obstacle or challenge that we face. We honor you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The preceding verses tell us about a Roman soldier whose servant was ill. And with great faith in the Lord, he simply said, Lord, you don't even have to come to my house. If you would just speak the word, I believe my servant would be healed. The Lord said, I haven't seen great faith like this in all of Israel. That's a strange statement, if not an extraordinary statement to make when you consider the number of people in all the Gospels who were healed. And you consider the number of people who came to Christ. He didn't seem to find that faith in any Jewish person. But here's a centurion now, and the Lord says, I have not found so great faith in this nation. He'd been raised in that nation. He started his ministry when he was about 30. This man has done some significant wonders and had all kinds of paralytics and infirmed people come to him, trusting him, reaching out to touch the hem of his garment in some cases. But he said, I never found anybody that believes like this. I think trust and confidence is important. And if you have confidence in God, you certainly can believe that he's going to act on your behalf. When they went home and found that servant whole that had been sick, I think there were a lot of people encouraged. Then everybody went to bed and then it says the next day or the day after. That little phrase, the day after, is interesting to me because in this day, Jesus is going to raise somebody from the dead. And that demonstrates to me that the power of God is not limited to a particular 24-hour period. That no matter where Jesus goes, no matter when he goes, he can do something supernatural. The presence of God is not limited by geography, is certainly not limited by any kind of time or space, but the day after. And I think for this widow, she's probably grateful that there was a next day. Think of all the people that have been saved in the history of the church. But because there was a next day, you came to know God. Somebody witnessed to you. 
a tract was given to you, saw something on television or heard something on the radio. The Bible is pretty clear here that on this particular occasion, Jesus is making his way to a city called Nain. This is the only record of this town or village in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It wasn't popular. Some obscure place. But even places that aren't necessarily renowned or famous can become the site of the power of God if the Lord comes and visits it. You don't ever have to think that God only moves in large metropolitan places. And you don't need to be under the impression that he only moves for powerful and influential people. Jesus, the one from Nazareth, even comes to a little village like this called Nain. We don't know much about it. I've been there. And it's just a spot in the road. It's nothing to write home about. But on several occasions, I've walked the roads in this this uh, little village where the remains and the rubble and the ruins and everything like that still exist. But Jesus came to this place and the Bible says many of his disciples were with him. Now, his disciples, we're not just talking about the 12 apostles. We're talking about believers, people who came under the yoke of the Lord Jesus Christ and were followers of him. Now, what is a disciple? A disciplined believer in God, someone who has brought their life into conformity with the teachings of Jesus. I'm not talking about a person who converted to a church. I'm not talking about a person who believes they're born again because someone put water on them as a baby. I'm not talking about a person who walks down an aisle and shakes a preacher's hand and because they join a church, they think they're now a Christian. You could just as well shake the tail of a donkey, but that's not going to make you a Christian. A person who places their trust and faith in Jesus and recognizes that on the basis of his death and his shed blood, all of my sins have been removed and I can begin again as, as if I'm a brand new innocent baby. That's a Christian. Someone who knows the blood of Jesus never runs out. Someone who understands that in following the Lord, I should be in hot pursuit of his will, chasing after him, not as though he's running, but drawing closer to him. And then the Bible says there were much people. And I don't doubt that amongst this crowd, there were believers as well as skeptics. Some of them likely weren't disciples. There were probably people who just showed up to follow Jesus because they wanted to see what would happen. I've had people come to church that are that way. They would have heard that maybe there's a a preacher telling stories about what God has done and the supernatural things God is able to do. And I've had people come up in church just to see whether or not it's true that the God of Scripture is still the God today. I had a man even ask me one time after he heard me preach. He said, you tell these stories about the wonderful things that God has done for you, but I I want God to do a miracle for me. And so I asked him, I said, are you a believer? He said, no. I said, then why would you expect God to do anything for you? You're not interested in him. You don't have any desire to, to, uh, to pursue his will and to live in conformity with the truth of the word of God. I said, I was never running after miracles. I said, these things happened. And I looked back and I realized the hand of God was guiding, preserving and protecting 
along the way. And of course, everything looks different in hindsight, you know. But there are occasions like this when the presence of God is immediate. Things happen quickly. Now, you, you have to envision this. There were no cars. There were no trains. And Jesus is traveling from Capernaum, making his way towards this little village. And he's got a, a host of people all around him. And you better believe these people were asking questions. Lord, what did you mean when you said this regarding the kingdom of God? What, how, how in the world did that happen? When you prayed for that baby and the baby was here, there was excitement and there was joy. I mean, there's enthusiasm around Christ. And I honestly believe that is exactly what happens in the presence of God. Scripture tells the story of him being in the temple and all the children shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, because Jesus was there. I've heard a lot of people try to figure out ways to encourage young people and get them on fire for God. The number one thing that will touch the heart of any young person is the presence of God. The presence of God. You can try anything. You can try all kind of board games. You can do the giveaway bicycles and all of that. Give a dollar to every kid that shows up for Sunday school and there will be a host of people there. But if the presence of God is there and you can see people weeping and crying under the anointing, you can see people laying hands on one another, praying and the presence of God in that place. Young people will think, oh, my, this really is something. Yeah, I've had them services Sometimes down there on the Friday night in Hayes where we're laying hands on the sick or praying for people during a healing service. And them little seven-year-olds, they release them out of the children's class and they come running down into the altar just to see what in the world they're doing down there. Because they're interested in the presence of God. Well, I think there was a whole lot of joy around Jesus. But verse 12 says he came to the gate of the city, and the gate, of course, was the place of authority and power. Remember the Bible says of Lot, when he separated from Abraham, he sat in the gate of Sodom. It says of Moses that he stood in the gate of the camp. And you remember when Boaz wanted to marry Ruth, he had to go down to the gate of the city. Of course, when problems were solved, they were solved at the gate. That's why King David sometimes stood in the gate and why Absalom swayed the hearts of the people at the gate because a city or a village was surrounded by a wall and the gate was where things went in and things went out. This determined economic status in the village. This is where the town council met. You had taxes and levies and imports, exports, all of that coming right through the gate. This is where decisions had to be made. And this is why Jesus, in talking about the church founded on the rock, he said the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. So there's going to be a collision here. Life is going to confront death and it's going to happen right here at the gate, at the position of power, at the place of power. And you can see that at the gate then, They looked up, and here's a dead man being carried. Of course, when we talk about someone who's deceased, we're talking about someone who's lifeless. I'm not thinking of the African way where sometimes a person 
may not be entirely dead, but yet they'll take someone who's seemingly dead and take them out to a dung hill outside the village and leave them for the wild leopards and stuff to get, get them because there's no life in their body or movement at all. No, no twitching or anything. In this instance, we're talking about someone who's entirely dead and being carried out. Well, as he's being brought out, this is when he comes into contact with the king. I wonder sometimes when I read a story like this, who is it that makes the decision? Who are the pallbearers? Who's the one that get to handle the dead in ancient times, you know? Because when I, I, I look at this now, I wonder how, how many Randy Beavers are here at the gate carrying this body, you know, bringing it outside there. But, but it's interesting the way ancient people handle these circumstances. This lady is surrounded by a whole lot of people, and the funeral procession is making its way outside the city. You know the difference between the ancient way and our way. Today, when somebody dies, we have the funeral in a church or in a funeral home, and then afterwards, everybody gets in their car, makes their way to the cemetery, and they turn their lights on the car. And then the police officer goes somewhere and he stops traffic so that all the cars in the procession can make their way to where they're going. Hasn't always been that way. I mean, just 80 years ago, 90 years ago, certainly for most of history and in most parts of the world today, in the third world, if we can use that phrase, people still are walking to the cemetery. Multitudes of people. And I'm sure there was wailing and there was screaming. I've had a handful of times in my life where I've been around the, the dead in the Middle East. And it always shocks me when I have to think about the professional whalers. I mean, just, it's just natural. It comes out of people. This one Palestinian family that I lived with, the youngest daughter lived on the first floor with her kids, husband. I was on the second floor with the grandmother and grandpa. The third floor was the oldest daughter with her husband and their kids. The top floor was the oldest boy with his wife and their sons. And I remember sitting on the porch one day and we were all sitting there laughing. And the grandfather said to his wife, I'm going in to stitch a pair of pants. He got up, he walked in. And after a few moments, we heard a thud. So the wife jumped up, ran in there real fast, and sure enough, looked up. He fell out dead there on the floor. So myself and the oldest boy and some of the grandsons, we then took the body, put it up on the bed. Then they start telling me what to do as far as removing clothing, preparing him for burial. The oldest son and the grandsons went down in the backyard. I could look out the window and watch them. They started building a coffin. They weren't going to have a funeral in two or three days. This is going to take place here pretty soon. And that house became a haven for the family who, when they walked in, the men came by that body after we had prepared it. And they looked, they bowed their head, and then went and sat down and started crying. The women all walked in, from the little girls to the oldest ones, walked in, saw the body, and just started wailing and screaming. I mean, this was going on for hours. 
I just wanted to find a door to hide behind because it was just so heart-rending listening to all of these yells and these screams. And after we finally had the funeral and I said to them, I said, that was, that was really something. I said, that man get up early in the morning. He started reading his Bible in the living room at about 6 or 6 a.m. or so. And one by one, everybody all throughout the house just started making their way down into the living room. And they listened to him read the Bible. Then they all had prayer. Then the kids went to school and everybody else went to work. That was just about every day. I got up several times with them to do that. And I said to one of the daughters, I said, um, you know, he, he really looked good for a man in his 70s. God gave him a good long life. She said, 70s. My dad wasn't in his 70s. My dad was over 110 years of age. I said, really? I said, that man I've been praying with, that little tiny man this big, in that house, the Nazarene church started. In that house, the Baptist church started. In that house, other churches started. They would tell me stories of how he would walk throughout the streets of Amman, Jordan, and just witness to anybody. It didn't even matter if they were Muslim. He just told the story of Christ. Now he's dead, and these folks are wailing. So I can only imagine what the sound was like with this lady who's a widow and she's making her way out of the gates of the city and the people are with her. Now notice that the same language we have at the end of verse 11 is the same language we have at the end of verse 12. Much people of the city were with her. Now with Jesus, you had excitement and you had enthusiasm, and there was happiness and joy. But with this woman coming out the gate about to bury her only son, what kind of emotion do you think was exhibited? Wasn't a whole lot of happiness. Not a lot of smiles and merriment. The patriarchal community of that day, the father was the breadwinner. And I'm sure when she lost her husband, that was a great blow to her. I don't know how long she was married, but now she's lost a son? Yeah. Tough. And with every step she took, I know her heart ached. And the people that were around her, maybe some trying to comfort her, others possibly trying to hold her up. Certainly there was wailing and screaming and tears being shed. And you can see the difference between the two communities. The community with Christ filled with joy. Then this other one here, grieving. Nothing wrong with grief and mourning. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes, everything there is a season. But I want to emphasize that for us that are believers in God, the scripture makes it very plain that we don't grieve like people who don't have a hope. We have a relationship with God. And when someone passes away who has known God, we consider it a homegoing celebration. And we're praising the king because somebody is now in the presence of God. But consider the number of places there are on planet Earth where the churches are like Jesus and all of his followers. And where there are some church services where every service is like the widow and all the people around her. Yeah. No life. But then there's life over here. God hadn't called us to be bearers of the dead. You carry something living inside of you. 
You carry something vibrant inside of you, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He dwells inside of your heart. You're not called to be a bearer of the dead. No offense given. But notice in verse 13, the scripture doesn't say that when the Lord saw the decedent, it says when he saw her. He got a glimpse of her and he had compassion on her. Here was a woman that in her mind thought she was invisible in the midst of that crowd. And she's the one Jesus saw. You're the one Jesus is looking at. You're the one Jesus is concerned with. You're the one Jesus wants to show compassion to because he knows you're the one that's hurting. And if you're here this evening and you're hurting, wounded, broken in any way, Jesus is watching you. He's got his eyes on you. He's paying attention. He knows about every private pain that you have. He knows about every hidden sorrow that you have. And so verse 13 says, he said to this woman, don't cry. I bet she was crying. You ever notice how the angel of the Lord has a tendency to show up and tell people, don't be afraid. After their knees are already knocking and they're trembling. He says, don't be afraid. And then the Lord says, don't weep when people are already weeping. How do you tell somebody not to weep when they just lost a son and they're going to bury him? But the pallbearers and the procession had to stop because the two crowds came together. And Jesus walked over to the coffin, and when Jesus touched the coffin, the people that were there stood still. I don't know if he walked over to the coffin and just stopped the forward progress of it so that they would know to stop, or if he just walked over and just tapped it. But whatever he did, his presence signaled to them, stop moving. They stopped moving. Jesus looks at a dead boy. Said, young man, I'm telling you to get up right now. You, you talk about somebody bold and audacious and saying something extraordinary. Young man, I'm telling you to get up right now. And then it says, he that was dead sat up and began to speak. Now, you've got to really think through what just happened here. Here was a boy that was dead, confirmed dead. Here was a boy whose body has been prepared for Jewish burial, dead. Here was someone who was incapable of walking on his own, but is being carried and he's dead. And Jesus comes along and says to him, young man, I'm telling you to get up and rise up. You know what had to happen? That heart that was dead had to start beating again. Yeah. The organs in that body had to miraculously start functioning again. A brain that no longer was functioning had to begin to function miraculously at the word of the Lord. And when Jesus spoke that word, everything in that body responded to the word of God. How many bones are there in the body? They say 206 or something like that. All of those bones had to respond. All of the blood vessels had to respond. And a young man that was dead sat straight up and started talking. You talk about shocking. Yeah. I was just talking with a lady the other night and she was telling me how when she was a young girl, 
about uh, 17 or 18, getting ready for college, she worked at a funeral home in her town in western Nebraska. And she explained to me that her mom and them were saying, well, maybe that's not the best job for you because you're having to see too much. You know, they, they had her not only uh, handling the calls and stuff that came in. She was involved with visitation. They even had her back there to see some of the embalming. She was watching when they were fixing up the bodies, dressing the bodies when they came in dead, had to wipe the blood and everything off of the bodies. But she told me the one thing they never told her about was what happens when that body has rigor mortis setting in. So she said there would be some night she'd be there at that funeral home and there'd be five, six, seven or more bodies that were there. And of course, some of them had the sheets over their heads. Some of them just had the sheets to hear or whatever. But she said she'd be there in the middle of the night. Then all of a sudden she'd look over there and a body would twitch. And of course, she's ready to take off running. But she said, finally, they explained to her that when that rigor mortis is setting in, sometimes that body gets to moving and it's a sudden move sometimes. Well, she didn't know that. Well, think of this. This young man here, he's been dead. We don't know how long. But if he's been dead long enough to be buried, then it's confirmed. And then the body says, Bible says he he sat up, began to speak and Jesus delivered him to his mother. Do you think his mother was happy? Wow. Jesus raises the dead. There's no challenge, no obstacle too big for God. If he can drive out death, there's no devil, there's no depression, there's no angry spirit, there's no wounded heart that he cannot heal. If his life can overcome death, then there's nothing anybody in here is facing right now that the presence of Jesus can't handle. And the scripture says where two or three are gathered, he's right there in the midst. That means that by faith we can expect that when we gather, the same Christ that was in name is the same Christ that's in Hebron. We can believe. He can meet every need. He can, he can heal us. He can bless us. He can touch us. But all of us at one point were dead in our trespasses and sin. Yeah. We were making a slow grave walk towards the cemetery. And Jesus came along and spoke a word that ministered to our heart. And he said, awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead. And you responded. Why did you respond and other people haven't responded? Yeah. Why did God come to your gate? Why did God come to your home? However broken your home and your life may have been, however whole and wonderful your home and life may have been, why did God come to the saloon where you were? Why did he come to that grocery store? Why did he invade that office where you were just to come and minister to you? He's got a plan, a purpose. This young man came back from the dead, and I guarantee you, according to verse 16, there were a whole lot of people wondering, oh my goodness, what kind of a man is this? It's a prophet of God that has come and has been brought up in our midst. This man is powerful. And it says they glorified God because if anything is truly of God and miraculous, it should lead people to magnify and glorify the king. If it, didn't, if it doesn't lead to worship, I'm not going to believe it's of God. It should lead to a greater heart 
in a greater desire to love the king and to magnify his name. A great prophet is risen up among us. Now that little Greek phrase there, risen up, is the same as we have there in verse 14 where he said to the young man, arise. His Christ that stood up, rose up in the midst of a dead nation filled with religion. And yet Jesus opens up his mouth and he's calling people from the dead. Think of how many folks were touched by him. Lazarus was dead for 96 hours and the Lord raised him. Yeah. And there were people that were angry at Lazarus because he was a living testimony to the power of God. There are a lot of people that are unhappy with your presence because you're a trophy of God's grace and you're a living testimony to what God can do. But not to spiritualize that too much. I mean, God has done marvelous and miraculous things, even in the physical with regard to this. I don't understand all of this. I had a lady, one of my ladies telling me this uh, just a couple of weeks ago. She's got twin, twin boys. I think they're six or seven now. But when they were about three or four, she told me she started immediately her and her husband started teaching the boys how to swim. Said they were at the swimming pool one day. They looked up and one of the boys was at the bottom of the pool, unresponsive. And so I said, well, what did you do? Well, she said, of course, I screamed and people were diving into the water to get him because they don't even know how long he was down there. You know how it is at a pool. You just got a lot of splashing, people having a lot of fun. You don't know how... When people get in trouble and how long they've been down there, but said they got down there, brought the boy up, said they they ran over there to where the mama was and the mama was holding him and she she's pushing on him and giving him mouth to mouth. There's no response at all. She said there's not even a pulse or anything. And I said, well, what did you do? She said, the only thing I knew to do, Pastor I just shouted at my son, you'll live and not die. Death, you've got to go. And she said she leaned back down there, started with the mouth-to-mouth resuscitation one more time. And then here comes her son coughing in the water and everything came out, coming out of his mouth. And then I'm looking every Friday night at this little boy running around that church. You see? Now in somebody else's hands, little boy might have not come back. Mama may not have said that. I preached for a man in Brooklyn, New York, many years ago. Church of about 3,000 people. He's from the islands. And he had come here when he was uh, in his late teens. But he told me this story, and I've never forgotten. I always tell it when stories like this come up. He, he was telling me in his office, he said, Darrell, I started preaching when I was 15 years old. I said, what happened? What, how did God call you? He said, well, he said, I got sick. And he said, at that house where I lived on that little island, we had a pastor who had churches scattered all up in the mountains there. And he said, I got sick and died. And said, they told me all this afterwards. Said, my mother wouldn't even bury me. She said, we're not holding a funeral until the pastor comes back. Well, pastor just left. He's up there preaching in the mountains. Finally, the saint said, look, you just can't keep your boy in your house like that. That's not healthy. So they got the funeral together, had the 
the uh, procession, got the body dressed and everything for burial. They had left the house. All of the family and friends were making the walk towards the cemetery. Coming down out of the mountains was the pastor with several of his preachers. And met them and said, what is this all about? Said, well, so-and-so passed away. Said, well, before you bury him, at least let's pray for him. That pastor stood there with his preachers and all those other people and prayed for that young man. And that young man came back to life. And then here he is sitting there in that office and he's telling me that. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm thinking kind of like some of you are thinking, are you serious? And, and he's looking at me. He's telling me that story. But then I had to remind myself that down at Jimmy Swagger's, where I had come from when I was traveling up there preaching, there was a lady that used to look after Tiffany named Mama Claire. She volunteered to work in the cafeteria. She was in her late 70s when I was there 25 years ago. Mama Claire was raised, I believe, in Jamaica. She tells the story how when she was a little girl, she got sick and had died. And the preachers and the family members that fasted and prayed and came in there over her little seven or eight year old body and called her back from death. I said, gosh, there's a lot more of this going on than anybody ever even realizes. Jesus came amongst these people and changed their life. The Bible says in verse 12 that this was the only son of the mother. And the only son of the mother came in contact with the only begotten son of the heavenly father. Then you can see the final sentence of verse 16 says God has visited his people. I wonder sometimes do we miss the day of our visitation. Second Great Awakening took place in the 19th century. A lot of people were affected. First Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, so many of this preaching the gospel outdoors and in little wooden tabernacles. And people were screaming and clutching the backs of pews and repenting of their sins. Francis Asbury, it was a man that was sent here from England by John Wesley. John Wesley rode horseback more than 5,000 miles a year, they said, to preach the gospel. This he did for more than five decades. Established one house fellowship and class meeting after another throughout Great Britain because that man preached the gospel and England was visited by the presence of God. You can read his diaries. See about how people would fall out on the sides of the hills shaking and crying out to God. Francis Asbury came here to this nation and on horseback rolled back and forth preaching the gospel and establishing Methodist churches in this country. That man didn't have a lot of the benefits and advantages that we have right now. But what light he did have on the scripture, he preached that light and saw multitudes of people saved. When you go back and read some of his old sermons and read about some of the camp meetings where he preached and you could see the glory of God in manifestation as folks were giving their hearts to the king. Let's not forget that Mr. Finney, when Charles Finney was traveling throughout this nation and preaching, the Presbyterian church fought him tooth and nail. They said this is not of God. That man had prayed through, got filled with the Holy Spirit and village after village from New York all down the eastern coast and the eastern seaboard was affected by that man's preaching. 
because he sent people in weeks before he got there, months before he got there, who prayed in advance. They said he would have some extraordinary miracles of salvation that would so change the town that the saloons and bars and beer gardens would close. Folks, that's when you know you've had a visitation of God, when you can shut down a saloon. When you find a county that goes dry under a person's ministry, I'm telling you, God is moving in a powerful way. What about William Booth? Salvation Army. He was in the Methodist church over there. But the Methodist church that said, look, we want to grow our fellowship. Let's get some new people in here, some new blood. William Booth went to where the orphans were. The homeless people were. The drunkards were hanging out. He went to where the prostitutes were. And he started dragging them into church. And the Methodist leader said, look, we asked for new people, but we weren't talking about people like this. And Mr. Booth then exited the Methodist church and started the Salvation Army. He was leading so many people to Christ in the slum areas of London and other places that these people had no clothing, had no place to live. He had to go around raising money on his own, begging people for money just to be able to gather some tenement buildings to put these people in. And so many of them didn't have clothing. That's why he started the uniform for the Salvation Army so that everybody at least could look the same. Whether you came from a good family or a bad family. Everybody had the same uniform. And since some of them were musical... He somehow procured some instruments and they would walk down the city streets with their outfits on, banging the drums and playing the music and singing. And once they drew a crowd, then somebody would preach the gospel. And then those that got saved, they'd invite them all the way back to the building and have an even bigger worship service. This thing broke out. It was happening all over England. Then it spread into different parts of the earth, even here in America. And people were being born again everywhere. General Booth, John Wesley, were the only ones of their day turning the women loose, letting them preach throughout the streets, telling folks about the king. One by one, folks were getting saved. It was a time of visitation. Nations were changed because of it. But you wouldn't know it today when you go to the nearest department store or grocery store and look out there and see the little bell ringers for the Salvation Army just asking for money. That it used to be a great revival movement that touched hearts and lives. The Bible here says God has visited his people. I, I hope and pray God will visit their county in a powerful way. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, wouldn't that be something? W- wouldn't it be something for people to pull up in the parking lots of the churches and just couldn't even really get into the building because once they got out of the car, they just fell on their knees and began to repent and cry out to God. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it really be something to see people once again grab Bibles and clutch them and hold them dear to them and begin to weep and pray? It'd be good to see people once again pray through and talk to God and the mighty power of God fall in that home or fall in that church and tongues of fire appear above people's heads one more time because they're in earnest and they're fervent about God. See people healed, touched, 
See, people totally delivered so that Acts chapter 10, 38 could manifest where Jesus went about healing all that were oppressed of the devil. It has never been God's plan for God's people to suffer any kind of pressure that doesn't lead to greater glory of God in their lives. I don't think God wants any one of you in here or myself to have to spend all of our lives trying to take uppers to Keep our emotions up so that we won't get so down that we'll be ready to hurt ourselves. I don't think it's the plan of God for our kids at the age of six, seven, eight, nine, ten to have to take downers because their emotions are so busy that we got to try to quiet them down. The presence of God is real. And Jesus is the one who is able to bless and to heal. Amen. Amen. Folks, we need a time of visitation. Yeah, because Jesus does raise the dead. Let's stand tonight. Find us a song there, Mr. Will. Maybe you're here tonight. If you need prayer tonight for anything, we certainly want to lay hands on you and pray for you. Ask God to minister to you and bring blessing into your life. God doesn't want a one of us to lay down every night in bed with the devil in charge of us. He doesn't want one of us to lay down every night in bed and get up with pains all over us. He doesn't want a one of us to have a wounded heart and a bitter spirit. But whatever we may have on the inside... He's a healer, and he can bless. There's no doubt about it. All heads bowed, eyes closed real quick like maybe you're here. you honest enough to say, Pastor, I do need prayer this evening. And I would like to ask you if you would pray with me or for me. If that's you, would you slip your hand up in the air? We want